light banishes darkness. It enables us to see clearly. After the fall, in Genesis 3, we see the world descend into a realm of darkness. Humanity had rejected God, and therefore the source of light and life. But God, God made a promise that one would come to abolish the reign of darkness and sin that had its grip on the world. Through Abraham, God chose a really unlikely people for himself. The nation of Israel who were called to be a light to the nations around them. They were to live in, in such a loving and distinct way that they reflected the beautiful heart and gracious nature of God to their neighbors. Leaders and kings were raised up, but each of them fell in his own way. Generation after generation after generation, there were cycles of moral decline and the pervasiveness of sin and darkness seemed unstoppable. The people who God himself chose continued to reject him. They actually ended up sinning more than the nations around them who they were called to be a light to. They became the laughingstock of those nations, a conquered people, marginalized, outcast and divided, stumbling around in the darkness. They're amongst the, the backdrop of Israel's existence, the dark backdrop, glimmers of hope were whispered. Even in the midst of their idolatrous rejection of God, as they were experiencing the just discipline, the spinning God's good rule, God remained faithful. Faithful to that promise that we see in Genesis 3. As he spoke to them by the prophets and continued the outworking of his promise that one would come to set them free from the domain of darkness. But what appears to be happening in our passage today is Israel's call to be a light to the nations has all but flickered out. You see, at this point in time in our passage, Israel are under Roman occupation and rule. And the spiritual leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the very ones who are supposed to be lighting up the path with their knowledge and understanding of the scriptures, were actually blindly leading people astray. Because of their scholarly prowess and their privileged education, they knew the Bible and the biblical law inside out. They've actually dedicated their, their whole lives to observing the law to a T. Because of this, they grew proud and their hearts overflowed with folly. See, the way that they viewed things, the way that the Pharisees viewed things, was to get close to God, you needed to earn his love. You needed to, to perform to please him. But also, they cared about more than anything so they wanted to see they wanted others to see that they were doing all the right things they really cared about what others thought about them they didn't realize that God cared more about the heart than the outward appearance on the outside they looked like these pristine gleaming white examples of piety but on the inside they were rotting and festering tombs of decay. 
But within the Pharisees' view, things were so toxic that it was blinding them. And that's where we rejoin our passage in John 8 to 12. So when Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Verse 13, so the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony isn't true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going. But you, you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. Can you imagine the scene here? So Jesus is, is in the temple. In fact, verse 20 shows us he's actually in the treasury of the temple as he's speaking. And this is the place where all the offerings are stored. It would have been a place that the Pharisees especially would have taken great pride and security in as they thought that they could pay their way into God's favor. So Jesus makes this I am statement. Let's not wash over it, okay? This is a pretty big statement. He says, I am the light of the world. He says that he is the world's source of light. He doesn't claim to be a light in the world. No, he's claiming to be the light of the world. A massive exclusive claim. There is no source of light, no way to see things as they really are without Jesus. Okay. Time for a little bit of name that song, some, uh, some interaction from the congregation. Right. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. What's the song? Sound of silence. Thank you. That could have gone one or two ways, by the way. Either somebody answered it or they literally just would have been the sound of silence. So either way, I was onto a winner. So yeah, the sound of silence. Thank you. Um, so the picture that's formed in this song is one of silence and darkness. People who the song is written about don't know the light that genuine love brings. And so what they do is they settle, in the last verse you can see, they settle for this man-made neon light. And they turn to it and they bow and they pray and they worship it as their source of light and life. All the while not realizing that they're still in darkness. I don't know if you've ever stood under a neon light before. But the thing about colored lights is that they don't shine the full spectrum of light. So what ends up happening is that under this kind of light, imperfections are really easily hidden. Jesus says in Matthew 6, he says this, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you, the very source of light that is directing you, is darkness, how great is that darkness? That's exactly what we see here with the Pharisees. They can't see clearly. They don't notice the glaring imperfections in their hearts because their man-made source of light is distorting their sight. And so what they do is they, they push back on Jesus and they start calling him a liar. Essentially, they're saying, that's a big statement, Jesus. Prove it. You've got no one to back you up. You're lying. And what Jesus responds is actually really quite amazing. Bear in mind that the Pharisees just called God a liar. 
Okay, he doesn't smite them off the face of the earth. He doesn't withhold their breath and cause them to, to collapse in a heap in front of him to humble them. No, he graciously sustains their life and gives them the very breath that they're using to insult him. Even as they mount the active opposition towards him, they undermine him, they rebel against the very one who holds all things together. Jesus, what does he do? He, he responds patiently. You see, Jesus knew that there were people around him listening. He would have had their eyes open through this conversation. Verse 30, it says, that as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Isn't that amazing? So Jesus continues to talk to the opposition and he begins to explain about his heavenly father. He starts to show them that even though the Pharisees, they, they claim to know God, actually they're lacking in relational intimacy with him. They know a bit about God, but they don't know him. Because if they did, they'd recognize Jesus as being his son. They're blinded, fumbling around in the dark. So much so that they completely reject the one who the whole of the Old Testament is pointing to. This thing that they dedicated their lives to study, they completely miss that it's all pointing to Jesus. Jesus goes on and he actually tells them and explains to them that they are slaves to sin. And this really, really riles them up. So what you see is, as a, as a people, the Jews knew about slavery all too well. They were continuously carried off into captivity and brought to the brink of utter ruin. But for the Pharisees especially, the ones who were building their whole lives around the keeping of the law, to be called slaves to sin, this would have been unpalatably offensive. So they push back on Jesus again. and They say, listen, we know our lineage and our father is Abraham. You know, the one who God chose to start up the whole nation of Israel. Verse 33, Jesus replies, I know your lineage. You still aren't getting it. You say that your father, uh, you're of your father Abraham, but you're not walking in faith as he did. Instead, you're looking at me with murderous intent in your hearts. In fact, you're showing your father is the father of lies, the devil. Verse 44. Because they were the father of lives, they were living and they were believing a lie. The very law that they were so zealously observing was actually to show them their wickedness. It was to demonstrate their inability to live up to God's perfect, holy standards. It was never to be a means by which humans could save themselves from the darkness of sin. We're trying to cling to their heritage and their good deeds as if it justified them in the sight of God. All the while dismissing the actual very one Jesus who was truly lighting up the way into deep and intimate relationship with the God who they claimed to know. Jesus, the true Israel, the actual light to the nations. It says this at the beginning of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, referring to Jesus here. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, is coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. His own people did not receive him. We see this rejection really play out in the next interaction. John chapter 9. It's this man who is, is blind from birth. Just imagine being blind for a minute. You can't see light. You can't see the people around you. You can't, you can't grasp shape or form. Now, just imagine being blind from birth. You can't even imagine what things look like. You have no reference to what shapes are or what colors are. or You've never seen a, a sunrise. You've never seen the, the lapping of waves up onto a beach. No reference of beauty or what a child's toothless smile looks like. He had to resort to begging to survive. All he knew was darkness. He never knew his mum and dad's loving and caring faces as they raised him sacrificially. All he knew was gloom and shadow. Jesus, Jesus sees him and his heart wells with compassion. He says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And he heals the man of his blindness. Just, a minute, just imagine for a second you being that man and you're sitting there in, in the darkness and then out of nowhere this man is rubbing mud on your eyes and then goes to, tells you to, to go to a pool and, and, and to wash it out of your eyes. So, so the man, he, he stumbles over to the pool, feeling his way around to try and get there, and he washes his eyes, and bam! Light floods his world. A kaleidoscope of color and form fills his brain, and for the first time in his whole life, he sees. He sees. Imagine, imagine the overwhelming emotion his eyes are probably streaming with tears that he's trying to wipe away and fight back because they're interrupting his newfound ability to see. Imagine what he felt. The dark weight of oppression being lifted off his shoulders. Imagine his, his heart overflowing with joy as he sees his mum and dad's face for the very first time. Everyone's amazed. Everyone's talking about it. Freedom from begging. Liberty from thinking that he was a burden and a drain on the ones that he loved. And then the Pharisees enter the scene. Skeptical. Unbelieving. They prod and poke questions about the legitimacy of this man and his story. They drag him and his parents in for questioning and unyieldingly interrogate them. How did this happen? Well, 
this man, Jesus, he, he made mud and he, he put it over my eyes and he, he told me to come and wash. And I, I was so confused, but I was so desperate that I, I, I just wanted to see, so I, I'd try anything. And it, it worked. Jesus, Jesus healed me. And I can see my life has totally changed. Wait a second, some of the Pharisees say. You're telling me that he made mud. He made mud on the Sabbath. This man can't be of God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. So in seeking to, to keep the letter of the law, the Pharisees completely miss the heart of the law. The Sabbath day was a day of rest. And a day of restoration. The Pharisees knew their Old Testament. They would have known the warnings of Isaiah 58 talking about Sabbaths and fastings. You see, the Sabbath wasn't put in place as another rule to keep. It wasn't a box to tick so that God knew you were one of the holy ones. It was never about religion. Never. God himself established the Sabbath as a blessing. A day of rest, a day of remembrance, a day to reflect the loving and gracious heart of the Father. And this day, this day was to form a posture of heart, to live in an unselfish manner and shine as a light in the darkness so that people could actually see the beauty of God's heart. Listen to what it says in Isaiah, talking about religious observance. It's such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow his head down like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is this not the fast that I choose, says God? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst and the pointing finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. The heart of God to those who are oppressed is one of abounding love. Abounding love. But here, we see how dark the human heart can be. Did you pick up the, the glaring irony in the narrative of this story? You see, the man who was blind had faith to see, despite his physical inability to. But those around him, the supposed spiritual leaders of the day, stumbling around in complete and utter darkness. 
blind to the incredible works of God that they were actually witnessing with their eyes. If although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We live in a dark world. There is no mistaking it. You know that there are more people in slavery today, right now, as we sit here, than there ever has been in the whole of human history. They estimate 40 million people in modern-day slavery. One in four of them are thought to be children. Every year, millions upon millions of babies are murdered without ever taking a breath. The vast majority of people in our culture deny the very existence of the one who made them and sustains them. Politicians, business leaders, intellectuals and celebrities form a tidal wave of influence that carries culture in a direction that is incredibly hard to swim against. And we, the church, have become more influenced by this tide than we dare to admit. The darkness in the world around us is real. And the struggle from all this external influence is a very, very real struggle. But what we see in the narrative of today's passage is actually a lot more sinister than the obvious darkness of a broken world. It's the darkness that we come face to face with here, the darkness that we cannot escape looking at, is the hidden darkness of the human heart. See, as we sit and we look in on the way that the Pharisees dealt with this, it's very, very easy to see their folly we'd be the fools if we didn't search our own hearts in the power of the Holy Spirit to see if we're guilty of the same things. So here's where I'm praying it gets uncomfortable for us. So you and I, we could dedicate our whole lives to reading the Bible, to preaching sermons, to, to leading gospel communities, so on and so forth. We could devote ourselves in our careers to the, the care others we could fool everyone in the room that we're close to God because um, we use massive words when we pray or we often say the right things or give really good biblical counsel we can try and bank all these good and holy works and find our security in them but be completely blind to the darkness in our own hearts and if this prospect doesn't terrify you then you are a fool listen to Matthew seven twenty one. this is Jesus speaking about the last day these aren't my words, these are Jesus words not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven 
on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The people rejected by Jesus as workers of lawlessness even fooled themselves. They had lived lives of damnable good works. Look at it. Didn't I do many mighty works in your name? These aren't the guys who are, are robbing banks or dealing drugs or murdering people. He's not talking to the prostitutes and the addicts here. And Jesus is talking to those people who put their trust in their own works. good things that they did. Because they had relied on these good things as their hope of righteousness, these good works became a one-way ticket to be cast out into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That should shake us to our core. Listen, God's standard is perfection, nothing less. If it wasn't, he would actually cease to be God. He is perfectly holy, and sin can't even enter his presence. You see, every human, every human without exception, has fallen short of the glory of God. Every human that is other than our Lord Jesus Christ. He was tempted every way, every single way as we are, and yet without sin. He lived with a pure and faithful heart. He was the true Israel, the one that displayed the love and mercy of the Father to those around him. He was selfless, he was caring, he was benevolent, and lived a life of worshipful obedience. And then, then he was betrayed by those who he served. He was denied by his closest friends. He was brutally beaten and spat upon and mocked. He was forced to carry the instruments of his own torturous execution up a hill. And then he was mercilessly nailed to it. Please listen to me. The heart that seeks to earn its way into God's favor clearly has not understood the cost. Look at the cross. Look at the cross. That's what it cost. It cost Jesus everything. Jesus Christ, God himself, gave it all. There is no way that we could add to it by doing a few nice things or following some rules. If you don't believe me, look at the thief on the cross next to Jesus. You see, he doesn't have time to right the wrongs that he's committed. He hasn't done any good works. 
he says with his dying breath, he looks at Jesus in faith and he says, Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus paid for all of your brokenness. There is no threshold of darkness that his life cannot and will not illuminate. You cannot out-sin God's grace. It is all sufficient for those who believe in him. Whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whoever As Jesus, as Jesus hung on that cross, the sin and the guilt of humanity laid upon his broken and distorted body. Darkness fell over the land. And this darkness is a symbolic representation of the eternal darkness due to us all. You see, without Jesus, there is no light. The just reward for humanity's rebellion is to be cast out into the outer darkness with that weeping and gnashing of teeth that we mentioned before. Forever. It doesn't get worse than that. This is what we deserve. You reject the source of light and life, then you spend eternity without the blessings of light and life. But, but for the blood bought children of promise. Those who look to Jesus in faith, knowing that we have no hope, no hope in and of ourselves, of defeating the darkness in us and around us, there is a magnificent new dawn approaching. You see, the grave, the grave could not hold him. All of the dark powers of the universe, the demons and the devil himself were no match, no match for the king of glory. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And because Jesus is alive, we who are in him are alive. Colossians 1 verse 13 says this. Please feel free to turn there with me if you have a Bible. Colossians 1.13. It says this. He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He has delivered us we have been torn from the grip of the realm of darkness and been transferred over to the realm of light. The kingdom of his beloved son. This is our reality. This is our identity. This is who we are. Instead of the, the crushing consequence of eternal punishment, we have reckoned to our account all of Christ's righteousness. 
all of the favor and the blessing with which the Father looks upon his own dear Son has been given to us. The debt, the debt's been cancelled. The bounty on your head has been paid in full. Nothing is owed. Because Jesus paid it all. What do we do? What do we do with this good news? We respond by walking in the light as he is in the light. We reflect his love and his character to all that we meet. We walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. Christian, we are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. We don't walk in obedience to gain God's favor. No. We walk in obedience as an act of worshipful response because he has already redeemed us and we have the light of life. Jesus said this in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, speaking to his disciples. He says, you are the light of the world. So we've gone from Jesus saying, I am the light of the world, to him now saying, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, when we reflect the light of life, when we reflect Jesus himself, we illuminate the way for others to see the love of the Father. That's what we're called to do. This, this is the way that we shine a world of darkness. Because you, if you're in Jesus, are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. A people for his own possession. That you may proclaim, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him not of ourselves, but of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you so much for the privilege of being your children. We want to thank you for taking our sin and taking our guilt and taking our shame and for transferring us from the realm of darkness into the kingdom of your glorious son, the kingdom of light. Father, help us please as we battle. Help us as we struggle to, to, to look to you in the everyday. Lord, we recognize that our hearts lead us astray. We recognize that we are people who struggle with sin and brokenness. So we want to thank you that you've paid for it all. Help us please to respond rightly. Help us please to be people who walk in the light as you are in the Thank you that your love for us is an everlasting love. We praise you.
In Jesus' name.